Psalm 66 is a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord by an individual who is rescued by God and is now offering God praise and sacrifice in the temple. This psalm opens with a call to all people to praise God in verses 1 through 4 and follows with a recital of God's mighty deeds in freeing His people from captivity and preserving them as a nation in verses 5 through 9. God had put this people to the test, but now at last has delivered them from their troubles, verses 10 to 12. And so the unknown psalmist offers praise and sacrifice to God in verses 13 to 15. And now in verses 16 to 19, calls on all people to join him in worshiping God. And then the psalm closes with a final note of praise in verse 20. And so as we look at Psalm 66, we're going to call it a song of grace and providence. A song of grace and providence. It begins in the first seven verses with thanksgiving to Yahweh. In verses 8 to 15, we have a tribute to Yahweh. And then finally in verses 16 to 20, we have a testimony to Yahweh. So let's begin with verses 1 to 7 and the thanksgiving to Yahweh. Verse 1, Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of His name, make His praise glorious, say to God, How awesome are your works! Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you, and we will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Selah. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in His deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in Him. He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not this rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. In the opening call to worship, the word for shout joyfully means to raise a shout or to blow a blast of the trumpet. It's commonly used as a war cry or a shout of triumph over one's enemies. But it's also employed in worship as well as a shout of triumph over one's spiritual enemies. As we see in Psalm 47 verse 1, O oh, clap your hands all you peoples, shout to God with the voice of triumph. In verse 2, the psalmist calls on us to make singing, the expression of joy, the means of our worship. The content of our worship, what we're singing in worship, is to be to the honor or the glory of God's name. See, worship music's not about elevating me or you. It's about elevating God. The attention isn't on you or me. The attention is on God. It's on glorifying God, honoring God's name. And in the Old Testament, the term name uh, is used to depict one's character. So we're praising God for who He is. We're recognizing Him for what He's done. As I said, that word name bears His presence, His power, His person. And so when we call upon His name, we're calling upon His presence. We're calling upon His power. We're calling upon His very person. And when we look and see the mighty acts of creation, that should be enough for us to give glory or praise to God in song. But it also reminds us that we have so much to be thankful for. Because not only do we see His work in creation, but we see His work in our own lives. In verse 3, the psalmist exhorts us to tell God that His works are awesome. In other words, His, his works are fearful, dreadful. They cause astonishment. That's what it means for something that's awesome. 
His, his works are seen when through the greatness of your power your enemies submit themselves to you. Literally the verb here, uh, it's translated as feigned obedience. Uh, it gives the idea that they cringe. Okay, Their hearts aren't in it, but they're so fearful that they feign obedience. We'll do it anyway just to get you off our back. This is God's power in judgment, in battlefield victories. He's defeated the enemy. And though in their heart the enemy doesn't want to worship him, they have no choice. They fall to the knee anyway. The statement here is fully eschatological. Because what we're viewing here is the final triumph of God over his enemies at the end of the millennial kingdom. It's eschatological because it's proclaiming his deliverance of the earth. It's eschatological because we see worship return and praise to God return to its proper place. And this, this vision here the psalmist has will only be fulfilled when Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, and then finally defeats sin, Satan, and death for a final time. This psalm foreshadows the new song of Revelation 5.9 that should be upon the lips of every believer. That which promises a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's the final triumph of righteousness. And so having put this vision before us, the psalmist invites us now to behold God's works. Look at what God has done in verse 5. They're awesome. It evokes that sense of wonder. And they're directed towards the sons of men. In verse 6, he recounts the exodus, particularly the parting of the Red Sea, that they walked across uh, the Red Sea and later the Jordan on dry land. These are supreme examples in the Old Testament of God's awesome works because they reveal His supreme act of redemption. He redeemed them from Pharaoh. He redeemed them from the wilderness. And, and God's sovereignty was displayed over nature when He liberated Israel and brought them into the promised land. And that led them to worship in verse 6. There we will rejoice in Him. Through remembering what God has done and by knowing that we are united to His plans and purposes throughout history. Christian, you need to see yourself as standing at a Red Sea. You need to see yourself as standing at the Jordan River. Ultimately, our Red Sea, our Jordan River is Calvary and the empty tomb. We have shared in the death and the resurrection of Christ, and we have come to this place to rejoice. That's why Paul said when he was crucified with Christ, can you say the same? Can you say that, yes, today I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but the life that I'm living, I don't live for the flesh, but I live for the Son of God. Are you living for Him? And is it reflected in your worship? By faith, we come to these crucial events. We look back at those events. We know that they're for us. Israel's exodus pointed to our exodus. Christ's death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. And the consequence of his awesome works is in verse 7, he rules by his power forever. He is the sovereign king. His power is manifested when he defeats his enemies. He defeated sin and death on, on the cross. And after the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, he's going to defeat Satan and cast him forever into the lake of fire. 
His reign will be eternal, forever. And the nations, or the Gentiles, the Guyim, the rebellious ones, as they're depicted here, will be unable to exalt themselves. That's the testimony to Yahweh. Now let's consider the tribute to Yahweh in verses 8 to 15. The tribute to Yahweh. Verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You have made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer you burnt offerings of fat beast with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. The psalmist now exhorts God's people to bless him, namely to bless the God of Israel as the living and the true God. He's the only God. And this act of blessing is designed to, again, promote God's honor and respect through praise that is public and vocal. Listen, you can have your private praise, but praise also has to be vocal. It has to be put out there, and it's got to be public. Okay? God wants to be testified, not just personally, but publicly. Now, why does God need to be praised? Well, to begin with, the psalmist says, He preserved the life of His people. He keeps us in life and doesn't allow our feet to slip from His path. That's what He did at the cross. That's what He does at salvation. He keeps us in life, eternal life. He doesn't allow our feet to slip. We can't fall from grace. And this is true, and He knows it's true because God tests them. For you, O God, have tested us. That's what God's in the business of doing to believers. God sends trials into your life. He sends suffering into your life to test you as if he's proving metal. As the metaphor continues, you have refined us as silver is refined. That is, the dross has been melted out. We went through fire and through water. We went through painful times, dangerous means of testing. But, as he promises in Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall flames scorch you. Now, that, again, that's not physical in the sense of we're not going through physical water or fire. If somebody goes through physical fire, they're going to get burnt. You know, if somebody goes into the waters, there's the potential to be drowned. But what he's describing here is when you go through these fiery trials, these fiery ordeals, as First Peter says, God is going to bring you through it. He's taking you through it to refine you as silver and gold, to purify you. And because He is faithful, He'll bring you through it. You brought us out to rich fulfillment. Now, the whole passage in verses 10 through 12 presupposes the Exodus. In Egypt, Israel was tested and refined. She was netted in captivity. She had affliction laid upon her, but she was delivered to rich fulfillment, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And throughout the Bible, God's people are tested and tried. Paul tells us such testings are to produce godly character, Romans 5, 1-5. Because through, out of the trial, the glory shines. And likewise, out of, the de out of death, Jesus experienced resurrection. And so too, as we go through our trials and testings, God will bring us through and glorify us. The whole mood changes in verses 13 to 15. The psalmist becomes deeply personal. 
he begins to recite God's word, or excuse me, work with Israel, and his hopes are completed. He's asking, where do I fit into all of this? And the answer is, in worship. You want to know where you fit into things? In worship. That's where you fit in. That's where I fit in. You know, listen, we may not fit in anywhere else, but we do fit into the worship of the king. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. Now, the burnt offering uh, was uh, an offering of an animal, except for the hide. The animal was totally consumed on the altar. And what that burnt offering symbolized was complete surrender to the Lord by giving all that is His to Him. And that's what we're to do, friends. We're to be making a burnt offering of our life. We are to be fully surrendered, totally consumed on His altar. We're to give the Lord what is His. As Romans tells us, that we're to be a living sacrifice, holy, given to God. Furthermore, the psalmist pays his vows. These vows were promises which he had made to the Lord in crisis when he was in trouble. Listen, friend, you've been in crisis. You've been at times when you've been jammed up against the wall somewhere. Oh, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll do X, Y, and Z. Well, guess what? God says it's time to pay up. Let you ABA and ABA nay. Now, if you've made a foolish oath, you better pray to God in repentance and apologize for such foolishness and never make such a foolish oath again. All of these phrases, the vows, the burnt offering, the sacrifice of the fat animal, the sweet aroma of the rams, all of these are parallel and suggest different ways in which the vow was fulfilled point is this, when you've made a vow to God, He expects it fulfilled in whatever you have said you will do. Finally, verses 16 to 20, the testimony to Yahweh. Come and hear, all who fear God, and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. See, the psalmist here having committed himself to worship, he now calls on all God's people to join him in the temple and hear of God's awesome works. You know, God's done something in your life, Christian. Listen, you need to come and gather with the people of God and share what he has done in your life. You know, whether that means you're calling them on the phone or you're writing in a letter or you're seeing them face to face, but somehow let the people of God know what God has done in your life. The psalmist makes his testimony, declaring what God has, quote, done for his soul. It's not enough to know what God's done for Israel. My friend, what has God done for you? Your witness will testify to what he has done. You know, as in the case in so many psalms, he tells his listeners here that he cried to God aloud with his mouth. Furthermore, God was extolled with his tongue. Literally, you know, he, he engaged the thing between his nose and chin. Not to gossip, not to gawk, but to praise God, to extol God. He took those two little things, the lips and the tongue, two things that can be so destructive, and put them to good use. He prayed, and he praised. And as he worshipped, he prayed, he, and prayed, he didn't hold on to his iniquity. No, he wasn't a hypocrite. He knew he had sin, and so he confessed and forsook his sin. 
Because he said, listen, if I regard iniquity, if I regard lawlessness in my heart, God will not hear me. Christian, maybe there's a reason your prayer isn't being answered. Maybe it's because you got iniquity in your heart. You need to confess and forsake it. He affirms in verse 19 that God has heard him as he prayed. His prayer received divine attention. He's now ready to praise God. And so in verse 20, he blesses God because he heard him and answered with mercy. That's how God answers. God always answers in mercy. Friend, we have a vital relationship with God. We experience the mercy and the grace of God. We can be assured that our offerings and vows are acceptable when we've done them for His glory, when we've done them without sin, when we've done them not to pat ourselves on the back, but to extol Him for what He's done. And so, believer, what do you do with Psalm 66? this song of grace and providence. I hope it drives you to find something to thank God for. I hope it, does, it, it moves on you to give a tribute to God. I pray that it causes you to give testimony to what God has done in your life. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for our text today and here in Psalm 66. And Father, as we consider the works of your hand, whether it be creation or, or, or redemption, Father, we are in all. We are undone in ourselves. We cannot even begin to imagine. And so, Father God, I pray that you would use those things to humble us as we draw near to you. That, Father, Lord, we wouldn't come to you in arrogance, but that we might humble our hearts. And, Lord, if there be any sin within our lives, that, Father, you would draw our attention to it, that we might forsake it, that we may leave it behind, that we may turn from it and turn to you. Father, I ask and pray that as we consider your works in our own lives, that, Father, it would cause us to give thanks to you, that, Lord, we might give a tribute to you, and, Father, uh, finally, that we may give a testimony to others of what you've done. You know, our thanksgiving and our tribute might be in private, but our testimony should be public. And so, Father, we commit that to you in your Son's name. Amen. <laughs>